Welcome to the Astrophys Podcasts. First of all, we would like to acknowledge Australia's first astronomers, the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, the traditional owners and custodians of the land we are on. This episode is produced on Yorta Yorta, Pangarang and Kaerna country. My name is Brendan O'Brien and today is Tuesday the 15th of November. We always include a community service announcement asking you to wash your hands regularly, wear a mask if you can't socially distance effectively and isolate as much as possible and as soon as you can to protect yourself and your community get that COVID-19 vaccination as we work our way through this global crisis. We also ask you to influence your local politicians with the message that we need to change our energy policies to move to renewable energy to mitigate climate change. Each month we bring you two fabulous episodes. On the first of each month, you'll get to hear Dr. Ian Astroglob Musgrave bring you his monthly sky guide, an astro treat for naked eye observers, telescopers and astrophotographers. And he always includes a tangent of astronomical wonder. In the middle of each month, we'll give you an interview with a noted astrophysicist, astronomer, astrophotographer, space scientist, or particle physicist. And this month, we bring you a special ASCAP recap episode, recorded live at an online event created and hosted by Rachel Rayner the wonderful communications advisor for the CSIRO Australia Telescope National Facility. So the first voice you will hear is when Rachel introduces us to four researchers who work with the ASCAP array in remote Western Australia. Australia's ASCAP radio telescope has had an amazing year breaking records, receiving awards and finding new objects all while still in its pilot phase. You'll hear from the scientists using ASCAP every day to further their studies, and from those working to shape ASCAP into a truly remarkable national facility. You'll discover how an Earth-based telescope can assist astronomers in a way we didn't know was possible a decade ago. And as a precursor instrument to the SKA project, what will be the largest telescope the world has ever seen, the lessons we've learnt from ASCAP are informing the next stages of radio astronomy. Rachel introduces us to Dr Karen Lee Waddell, Director of the Australian SKA Regional Centre, Dr Tessa Wernstrom, the Senior Research Fellow at ICRA at the University of Western Australia. You'll hear from Professor Tara Murphy, astrophysics professor at the University of Sydney and chair of the ATNF Steering Committee, and Dr Vanessa Moss, head of ASCAP Science Operations at Australia's premier science organisation, the CSIRO. You'll love this presentation. Over to you, Rachel. So I'm sharing now. And of course, introduce our wonderful panellists. And my job is to bring you the best stories from the telescopes that make up the Australian Telescope National Facility, which we usually refer to as the AT&F. This is a group of telescope facilities that include Murray Yang, the Parkes Radio Telescope, 
the Australian Compact Telescope Array, ATCA, which is in Narrabrise. Much of the large baseline array, which is made up of antennas across Australia, going into South Africa and New Zealand. And of course, our star for the evening, the ASCAP Radio Telescope. Now, ASCAP is well on its way to becoming a national treasure, and for many of us, it already is. So the ASCAP Radio Telescope is designed to be a survey instrument. This means it takes large sweeps of the sky at once, in record time, letting us scan the cosmos to discover new information on celestial objects young and old. It is the world's most advanced receiver, a phased array feed, which allows each disk to have multiple eyes on the sky. These beams are combined into one big overall view. Now, this time last year, ASCAP began its second phase, its last and final stage before full survey science. However, even though this is time for testing its capabilities and checking everything works as we want it to, there is still time for great science, as our speakers today will show. So, let me introduce our panel. As the Head of Science Operations for ASCAP at CSIRO, Dr. Vanessa Moss has a bird's eye view of all the research and data collection that is happening. She is developing software to enable ASCAP to automatically schedule itself, which is amazing, giving everyone more time to analyze the huge quantities of data produced. She is also part of ASCAP's first large absorption survey in neutral hydrogen, which is called the Flash Survey Team. Uh, her favorite ASCAP moment so far is the completion of the second rapid ASCAP continuum survey of the sky in ASCAP's low frequencies. Through technical adjustments and applying the automation system made by Vanessa and her team, there was a huge improvement in the efficiency and data quality. So look out for the data coming soon to an archive near you. Vanessa, welcome. I also have Professor Tara Murphy. She is the Professor of Astrophysics working in the School of Physics at the University of Sydney. She is one of the leads of the ASCAP Veritables and Slow Transients, the VAST survey, and leads Australia's radio transient surveys. Since 2015, she has led the Australian effort in radio follow-up of gravitational wave events, culminating in the first detection of radio emission from a binary neutron star merger in a collaboration with international colleagues. So Tara has heard a number of senior roles and very important for this evening is that she's the current chair of the ATNF Steering Committee, which oversees the management of Australia's radio telescope network that includes uh, the Parkes Radio Telescope, Muriang and ASCAP. Her ASCAP highlight is being on site and actually getting to see the telescopes, which is a rare opportunity for many of us as these telescopes don't like all the RFI, the radio frequency interference we bring with us as we go and visit anywhere, so we do keep them nice and isolated. So welcome. And we also have Dr. Tessa Vernstrom, who is a Senior Research Fellow at the International Centre for Radio Astronomy Research, ICRA, at the University of Western Australia. She works on studying the faint and distant radio universe and cosmic magnetism, from high redshift galaxies to filaments of the cosmic web. She is a project scientist, for the ASCAP Evolutionary Map of the Universe, EMU survey, imaging the radio sky in continuum emission, as well as being a lead in ASCAP's polarized sky survey of the universe magnetism, POSSUM, which will survey the polarized radio sky. Tessa studied astronomy in Minnesota and British Columbia and came to Perth as a Bolton Fellow at CSIRO. Now, I'm pretty sure I've seen her name in all the research papers I've read this year, 
which is no doubt due to her skill in data analysis and her broad range of interests. Her favourite ice cap moment was the discovery of odd radio circles, which we will hear more about tonight. It is a big hit from ASCAP research. And I love this quote I got from her, which says, they were something totally new and in itself is exciting and still a mystery as we still don't know what they are, but ASCAP is the best at finding them. The discovery has connected me to a great group of orc hunters, odd radio circles being orc, and we're all determined to solve the mystery. So thank you so much for being here, Tessa. All right, and last but not least, we have leading the charge into the next generation of radio telescopes is Dr. Karen Lee Waddell. As the director of the Australian SKA Regional Centre, OZ SRC, which is jointly appointed at ICRA and CSIRO, at CSIRO, she is leading the Australian effort to build computing and data-intensive research capabilities that will support astronomers using the current and next-generation radio telescopes, such as ASCAP and, of course, the incoming SKA project which will encompass huge amounts of antennas across WA. Karen joined the Royal Canadian Navy as a logistics offer while studying for a bachelor in physics. I also appreciate that she has a degree in classics, so I might ask her a question in Latin. Oh, no, wait, I'm going to ask her to answer in Latin because I don't know anything. After submitting her PhD in Canada, she jumped on a plane to come to Sydney and work with our wonderful telescopes here. As an active researcher, she is currently the project scientist for Wallaby, the All-Sky Neutral Hydrogen Survey that has been conducted on ASCAP. So welcome, Karen. Thank you. To start off the questions this evening, I will ask you first and say, can you tell us about your favourite ASCAP moment? Karen? Yes. So when you first asked, I had so many that I could list, but then I was thinking, when was that, that, that one moment? And I was like, it was when I was being shown this image from ASCAP. It was one of the recent images for the Wallaby survey. And it was a field and it had all these detections. And I thought at first it was a continuum image. So showing all the sources that are detected at all radio waves. But then I was told it was actually a map of the neutral hydrogen gas in the area. I didn't believe it at first, but looking closer, I could actually see all the detail. And at that point in time, I realized, well, I re-realized what an amazing instrument ASCAP is. In one single field, there is so much information, hundreds of gas-rich galaxies and so much science that we could do with it. Yeah, that's great. And I think it's amazing to me that um, ASCAP has done so much science already, even while it's in its testing phases. We haven't even really unleashed what ASCAP can do. So uh, that's really great. And because I know talking about what ASCAP can do and the science that's happening, Tara, I'm going to go to you because your team has had some great discoveries this year. Can you tell us about them and a little bit about the process behind that coming together? Sure. So our team is searching for astronomical objects that change really rapidly. So this is a sign that there's some kind of extreme physics going on in this object. And one of the things we do is write software to look through ASCAP images and look for things that have appeared or disappeared really quickly. One of the exciting things that we found in the last year was what's called a galactic center radio transient. So looking towards the center of our own galaxy, the Milky Way, we saw bright flashes coming from an object that we couldn't identify. And this object could change in brightness by a hundred times in only minutes, but then be invisible for months. And so this was a big mystery. This was discovered by one of my PhD students, Ziteng Wang. Yeah, this was a big mystery that we then had to do a lot of detective work to try and work out what was going on. Yeah, fantastic. And did you find out? 
Well, we found out a lot of things about this source. So the first thing we found out was that it was changing by many, many times and in a not periodic way. So in a kind of random way, uh, it was behaving. So this sort of ruled out a number of types of objects that we had initially thought. We looked really deep in visible light and we couldn't see any star there. So we knew it wasn't some kind of, you know, a normal star that was just uh, flaring a lot. And one of the really interesting properties that this radio emission had was that it was circularly polarised. Polarisation is a property of light that, coming from astronomical objects, circular polarisation is very rare. And so seeing this really, again, ruled out a lot of other things. What we think it could be is some kind of dying neutron star sort of spluttering in its last years um, and sending out these bright bursts. But at this point, we don't know. There are basically five objects like this that have been discovered in the galaxy, and this is one of them. Great. So I think we're, we're finding that a lot. We haven't had instruments this sensitive before, so we're finding things we haven't seen before. And that's interesting that you talk about circular polarisation. And I think ASCAP is one of the few telescopes that can do this. We haven't really been able to detect circular polarisation in objects before. Is that true? It's been possible to detect it in a really targeted way, like if we point at one specific object, but there hasn't been a radio survey like the ones we're doing with ASCAP where we can look for this routinely. Now, for those of you that, you know, this circular polarisation, it sounds like a really technical, uh, difficult thing. What does it mean? If you have something like Polaroid sunglasses and you look at light through them, so you look at the sun, that those sunglasses block out light that is a rotating in certain ways okay and ASCAP has the ability to detect that kind of light in radio waves that is polarized so when we look at that it comes from very specific physical processes and so it tells us about particular types of stars particular types of pulsars which are dead neutron stars and some really rare objects that we can't see easily in other ways yeah it's amazing and Tess I'm going to go to you now because you know, as we were saying, it's like there's all these new things we can discover with this technology that we have at our, our fingertips, as it were. And I think, as I said before, I've seen your name across so many papers. What are some of your favourites or some of the mysteries that you've seen across this year with ASCAP that you're looking forward to diving more into and finding that solution to? So, yeah, to come up with just like a few favorites is, is really hard because there's already been um, some really great science that's been happening, um, as you said, with just kind of the early science and, and pilot data. So one that you mentioned already was the discovery of the odd radio circles. These really faint, kind of large circular objects, as they're described, as it sounds, <laughs> um, but we just don't really know what they are. We've, we've never seen them before. And we found maybe, you know, less than a dozen now, but there's all sorts of different theories and we're spending a lot of time hunting for them, which is why the ASCAP images are great, having so much sky area to look through. But there's a lot of other great stuff. So with the EMU survey that you mentioned that I'm involved in, there's been some great work in the field of galaxy clusters. So some of the biggest structures in the universe. Um, so we've already found several new uh, radio relics, we call them, which is basically like a shock wave from uh, groups of galaxies merging together. And then there was really nice work detecting a faint bridge of emission connecting two clusters inside a supercluster. So this was some nice work um, using ASCAP and then Meerkat, another radio telescope. Um, and that was the first time it was detected at these radio frequencies. There was also some great work using the Large Magellanic Cloud, so kind of our nearest neighbor, and the radio emission from that to constrain dark matter models. Oh. Um, 
Yeah, uh, some beautiful work being done in uh, the galactic plane. So I'm not much of a galactic person, but there's some great work being done in the supernova remnants um, and just the really large scale emission that you see there. Um, then even outside of EMU, like uh, really exciting stuff from the craft survey. So that's, you know, studying and detecting the fast radio bursts, which is a, a really exciting and upcoming field right now. Yes, and I think that's that's a good point you make, the fast radio bursts, is that is something that had been detected with the Parkes Radio Telescope uh, back in 2007, but we didn't have a way to really uh, look for them and really find them on a regular basis like we can now with ASCAP and using that to, to find out more um, about our universe. Uh, yeah, so that's great. And the, um, the galaxy clusters, I think, are so big, and it's just such a wonderful thing to be looking into and uh, finding more about. And I want to jump to Vanessa. Before I do, Tessa, you mentioned dark matter. Is using radio telescopes, is that kind of the best instrument for looking for finding out more about dark matter? I don't know if it's the best, but there are a lot of models or theories for dark matter where um, the dark matter particles would collide with each other and annihilate, and this gives off um, other types of particles like electrons. They get spun up in magnetic fields, which then would give off radio emission. So by studying this kind of radio emission that might be very kind of low level and diffuse that's not associated with any particular like um, sources within a galaxy, um, we can kind of put limits on you know, how big those particles might be, like their mass, um, and how often they might be annihilating. Oh, great. So, it, yeah, it really is. This is using the universe as a particle accelerator right. to kind of discover what's there. Oh, I never thought about that before. That's <laughs> I think at this point, people are curious about radio waves and kind of what we're detecting, essentially, when we look at radio waves. There's quite a few things, but in terms of what Tessa was saying then about the electrons and the moving electrons giving off radio waves. The image behind you, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Tessa, the dancing ghosts, as we like to call it, that is produced by those electrons that are being shot out from that galaxy moving around, and it's the radio waves from the electrons there that we're detecting. Right, yeah, so this is from the EMU pilot survey. This is what we call synchrotron emission. So when we look kind of in the radio continuum, a lot of what we see is when these uh, electrons are being spun up in the magnetic fields, kind of being amplified, and that gives off the synchrotron emission, which we can then observe in the radio. So these particular ones are kind of some interacting galaxies that in the radio, you don't just see kind of uh, the nice spiral shapes that you might see in, say, the optical, but you can get these kind of jets of emission coming out. And when there's two of those nearby each other, they can even interact and um, you get a lot of interesting dynamics going on there. <laughs> Thank you. But now, Vanessa, you're part of um, ASCAP Science Operations, so you really get the behind-the-scenes look of how it all comes together. And your role is really varied. So how does the technology that you work with in astronomy kind of come together uh, in your work? Yeah, so it's actually, it's really interesting in, in this role because, so I come from a more astronomy research background. But as I've gone closer to telescopes and worked with them over time, it becomes more and more cross-disciplinary. So suddenly you're at this intersection of, you know, the science, which always provides the driving for how we use these telescopes and the questions we ask about the universe. Uh, but then there's the engineering and the technology to make, make it happen in new ways and new interesting ways, like the phased array feeds that we have on the telescope have never been done before and were developed in CSIRO. So that's just really cool to see something go from we want to see more of the sky to 
here's a piece of technology that has been developed specifically to do that and answer so many questions we didn't even know we had. The software development, so looking at how we run telescopes, how we operate them. And a big shout out to the site staff who, you know, we we don't have people on site 24-7, but we do have a team of people who go out every week or like a subset of that team to just make sure the telescope's in good condition and repair things. And it's that collaboration between all the different groups and the different expertise that really makes ASCAP work uh, and makes these kind of observatories function. Uh, so for me, that's really exciting because I'm always learning new things. Um, <laughs> on some days, I have a hat that's more of a software hat. On others, it's debugging things and trying to get more into the engineering side. Yeah, so I, I really enjoy it. And I kind of like, I like that ability to say, you know, here are some questions we're answering about the universe, but here's also how we get there and all of the complex things that have to happen to get to that final cool result like, like, like others have described. Yeah, and I think that's a good point. It's so easy when we do tell stories. We're like, ASCAP saw this, so this is the data from ASCAP. But there's like a team of people that really made that happen and, and everything we produce from the telescopes is, is from that team. And ASCAP is part of the ATNF, so it's part of an even bigger team and a bigger community. So Tara, how does ASCAP and its technologies fit into the ATNF and what role does the ATNF play in global astronomy? Yeah, so ASCAP is our newest telescope at CSIRO, and it's building on a whole tradition of radio astronomy that Australia has had. A lot of people might know that radio astronomy was basically invented after World War II with uh, initially the development of radar to detect aeroplanes off the coast. And one of the places in the world that that was really pioneered was actually in Australia, in Sydney, at CSIR. So ASCAP is the latest in a long tradition of radio astronomy in Australia. One of the great things about Australia is that being in the Southern Hemisphere, we can see the centre of our galaxy from where we are. We get to see a lot of our galaxy. So we have this really great geographic advantage in terms of looking at the sky. And we also have a country which has a lot of open space that is far away from radio frequency interference. So one of the reasons Australia plays such a strong role in the whole global radio community is that it is a really good place to observe radio waves that are coming from the sky without interference from terrestrial sources. Somebody, I think you were saying, people were asking, what are radio waves? At a really basic level, just think of all light is a form of electromagnetic radiation. The electromagnetic radiation that our eyes can see, we call visible light, or in astronomy, we call it optical light. Radio astronomy is very low energy, very long wavelength light. And one of the things about it is that it, it comes from all of the computers, all of the microwaves, all of the TVs, all of the aeroplanes, all of them generate radio waves. So we need our telescopes to be far away in the desert, away from uh, the, anything that generates RFI. And that's why ASCAP is in, um, you know, located where it is on this great site in Western Australia. So I think I've actually answered a different question. <laughs> this is why, this is why um, Australia and CSRO play such a strong role in global radio astronomy. Yeah, and, and the ATNF as a whole, of course. But you raise, it leads very well on to what I wanted to ask Karen next, actually, about the next step again, which, of course, is the SKA, which will be taking up a lot of space in Western Australia and the outback region there. It won't look like ASCAP in Australia. It'll be quite different. But, yes, yeah, so 
So tell us about how the technologies we're learning from ASCAP is going into the SKA. Are we learning stuff from ASCAP that's for the SKA? And, and what are you excited about with the next step? Well, yeah, ASCAP is really helping us usher in the next era of astronomy. Telescopes are getting bigger and faster, and that means they're also bringing in a lot more data. And so the old school method of downloading telescope data to your laptop and, you know, trying to do all the analysis and processing on your computer, that's totally a thing of, a path, of the past. Right now, with ASCAP, it takes about 15 minutes of observations to fill an entire laptop. And we observe for hours and hours and hours. So we basically need to use supercomputers along with automated scripts and pipelines to actually work with such volumes of data. The SKA will bring even more data. The SKA <laughs> will fill a laptop in about one second of observations. And so all the developments that we're doing, all the workflows that we're like working on to make ASCAP work, hopefully we can use those and, you know, be prepared when SK actually switches on. <laughs> oh, yes, much to come. But and of course, uh, that is down the line. We have ASCAP now that we can enjoy and research. And uh, we have uh, eight survey science teams that are, ooh, nine, nine survey science teams that are going forward for the next five years with ASCAP. And I wanted um, just to let everyone know a little bit about that. So I've got a video of uh, two of the different um, two members talking about their team, uh, but I'd also love to hear from you guys as well. So we have mentioned them in passing throughout already. Uh, Tessa, I might go to you first, because um, you have mentioned EMU, uh, of course, that produced the image behind you. Could you let us know very quickly, what is the EMU survey that'll be taking part in ASCAP for the next five years? So EMU stands for Evolutionary Map of the Universe, which I think you mentioned. And so this will be basically just kind of imaging about 50% of the sky over the next five years is the main goal in radio continuum. So I know you heard Tara mention earlier, like polarization. And then with Walby, there was the, the you know, hydro, uh, neutral H1 or hydrogen. But with the radio continuum, we're mainly just looking at this kind of synchrotron emission that I mentioned here. So... This is going to be to new depths that have never been reached before in areas that have hardly even been looked at before. So that's why it's, it's really exciting. So EMU is expected to detect over 20 million different galaxies. Um, and that doesn't even count things within our own galaxy and things like I mentioned, um, like these merger shockwaves or other types of structures as well. So that will just really enable all kinds of different science. Couldn't even list it all here. <laughs> but, uh, it'll be basically just like the go-to survey for the southern sky for the next at least 10 years, probably. Yeah, amazing. Thank you. So I'll jump over to Vanessa now. Do you want to tell us about FLASH? So I am part of the FLASH team, which is not a cute Australian animal, <laughs> unfortunately. <laughs> but it stands for the first uh, large absorption survey in H1. Uh, this is neutral hydrogen, so the fundamental building block of pretty much everything. And the really cool thing about FLASH is it's looking for this gas shattered against black holes in absorption. And so we, look, we can look pretty much across the whole universe. We're not sensitivity limited in the same way. We're only limited by the brightness of the background sources. And so that tells us about gas that's near black holes uh, and, you know, how it's evolving why it's even still there if the black hole could just be ionizing it to oblivion. So that's going to be really interesting and in connecting that with other high energy traces like X-rays and gamma rays. 
as well as just the gas distribution across the universe. So that's the goal of Flash, and it's it's pretty exciting to see some of the new results coming out of that. Yeah, and actually, while I've got you there, because you mentioned that black holes, I have a question here from the mm-hmm. audience who asks, is ASCAP collaborating with the EHT to image black holes? The short that's answer it. is no. <laughs> <laughs> the long answer is I'm not sure we could necessarily maybe someone else on the call is closer to yeah that. maybe that tara yeah although we're not able to image black holes in the way that the eht is what ascap can provide is a picture of a completely different part of the black hole so at the center of all of those galaxies in the image behind tessa all of those things in the image are agn active galactic nuclei so basically what you're seeing is the supermassive black hole at the centre of other galaxies, which is what the EHT is is imaging. What we see in radio is we see these massive, powerful jets. We see huge lobes of gas and shock waves and so on that are generated by the black holes at the centre of those galaxies. And if you put all of those bits together, we see a full picture of how supermassive black holes live and how they die and how they consume everything around them, you know, while they're in an active phase. So radio provides a different bit of the picture. Yeah, great. Thank you. And uh, while we've got you, uh, can you tell us about VAST? Sure. So VAST stands for Variable and Slow Transient Survey. And what we're looking at is everything that changes on rapid timescales. So most things in astronomy, in radio astronomy, actually don't change on very fast timescales. Most of those radio galaxies look the same for millions of years. But what our team is looking for is things like explosive events like gamma ray bursts and supernova that occur at the end of a star's life when it explodes and forms a black hole. We're looking for things much closer to home like flaring stars and exoplanetary systems around stars where we hope that looking at, for example, how stars flare could tell us about the habitability of any planets that are around them. And we're also looking for mysterious objects like the galactic center radio (laughs) transient that I mentioned before, which we haven't been able to see in the past very much because we haven't been able to survey the sky very rapidly. So we're looking for things that change. Yeah, great. Excellent. Because I think a transient, sometimes we go, oh, that's a strange word, but actually, no, we use it all the time. It's transient. It's here and then it's not. So, yeah. And uh, to another cute animal named Survey, of course, Wallaby. Karen, can you tell us about Wallaby? Yeah, so Wallaby is the All Sky Neutral Hydrogen Survey, and it has a very contrived acronym, so I'm not even going to pull it out. <laughs> Over the next five years, Wallaby will be able to detect and image the neutral hydrogen gas, and as Vanessa says, that's the building block of everything, and it's the fuel for star formation. We're, we're going to be able to see that gas in and around hundreds of thousands of nearby galaxies. And with that data set, astronomers will be able to improve our general understanding of all the processes involved in galaxy formation and evolution. (laughs) Amazing. Thank you. Uh, Yes, and of course, these teams have already been working for a couple of years now. We've seen great results from them, which we've been able to share today. So with that, it's time for your questions. So please put your questions in the question box that we have, and I can share them with our panellists this evening. So what questions do you have about the ASCAP radio telescope. So the first question that we've got in here, I think I'll pass to Vanessa. It's, do people, scientists, operators live at the WA ASCAP telescope site or is it mostly all remote controlled? 
So I know there's a lot of different parts in there because obviously there's a lot of different people that operate these telescopes. So the short answer is no, uh, we don't have, as CAP operations, we don't have anyone living on site. In fact, because it's such a remote location, the, the telescope and how we operate it and a lot of things, systems around it, were designed to be quite self-sufficient from the beginning. Because this is not how we want to operate telescopes now, right? They're such complex systems. So we need to be able to trust them to somehow take care of themselves. And so what we have instead is we have very good systems that, you know, look out at the weather and the environment around ASCAP and, you know, to, to keep, raise issues if there are them so we can react. Uh, but we don't actually have anyone, you know, spending their lives staring at screens. Like that would be a really bad use of people effort. And that's sort of, I think, something that's been evolving a lot in ASCAP. We've been thinking a lot about how do humans and machines collaborate. Within CSRO, there's a project specifically on collaborative intelligence. You know, where do we use this human expertise in a good way? Where do we trust the machines to take care of themselves? In this case, the telescopes and all of the systems that help make the telescopes work. So, so yeah, so there's a lot of remote control in that. There's a lot of how, do, how much do we trust the system? How much do we have to still intervene? I've been working on a scheduler called Sauron. So, you know, we have orcs and all of the things. We just kind of are going with it now. But Sauron stands for scheduling autonomously under reactive observational needs. So the idea is that we tell Sauron, here are all of the science surveys that we'd like to do. Here is a snapshot of the environment. If there's lightning, if there's storms, if there's wind. These are the telescopes that are currently working. These are the ones that might be out for means. We tell Soren all of that, and we trust it to make that decision uh, and to manage the observations. And instead, you know, we sort of as humans step back and say, all right, we trust this artificial intelligence to make these decisions. If it gets stuck, then it can let us know and we can work together with it. So that's sort of the principle and something I think we're still sort of evolving. Uh, interestingly, in Australia, we have a long history of astronomers doing the observations, whereas worldwide it was more like operators. But that actually has worked in our favor in this case because it means we don't have an existing operator model that we would draw from, so we can do something completely different. Yeah, great. It, yeah, it's an exciting time. I think. Well, I mean, it's always an exciting time, isn't it? But <laughs> the next question I have is that the layout of the dishes appears random. Is there a purpose to the layout? I was thinking, who wants to take this question? Is that a, is that a Tara question? Yeah, I'm happy to answer that question. Okay, it's, a, it's a really good question. One of the things that's actually kind of difficult to get ahead around with radio astronomy is that the radio telescopes don't take a picture of the sky in a normal way. So when you have an optical camera, an optical telescope actually works very similar to an optical camera. It, it literally takes a picture, um, a CCD picture of the sky. With a radio telescope, what we do is that each dish samples a bit of the sky. So because radio waves are so long, to have a telescope that operated like an optical telescope, it would have to be kilometers and kilometers wide, which isn't practical. So what we do instead is we sample bits of that massive kilometers wide area with individual dishes. And then we have to combine the information from those dishes together in a special way. And if you're technical, um, it's using Fourier transforms to form an actual image of the sky. Okay. 
Now, the length of the distance between those dishes determines what level of detail you can see on what scale on the sky. So if you want a picture of the sky in radio that has really fine detail and really big diffuse emission like the picture behind Tessa is a perfect example. It's got small compact things and it's got big diffuse things. If you want all of that in one image, you need to have your telescopes, lots of different distances between them. And that's why the ASCAP array looks random. It's actually very carefully planned so that each pair of telescopes has a different distance between it, short distances and long distances. Mm. Yeah, thank you. Going back now to what ASCAP is looking at, Tessa, can you tell us a bit more about the cosmic web and can uh, ASCAP help study it? Yeah, that's a great question. So the cosmic web, for those who don't know, is kind of a term that we use to describe the large-scale structure of the universe. So you've got galaxy clusters, this kind of uh, gravity pulling everything to, together in a clump. And they're connected by filaments and then separated by big voids of kind of very underdense area, kind of empty-ish. So we call that, looks like a web, the cosmic web. So, and throughout this web, there are magnetic fields, um, at least we believe them to be there. Um, and so again, we should get these particles that are being accelerated that then would give off this radio emission. So the web should basically kind of glow in the radio, but it's it's really faint and it's really spread out over these these very large sizes, which makes it very difficult to detect. And that's one of the reasons that ASCAP is, is so great, because it has really good sensitivity to what we call low surface brightness. So that's when you're spreading the emission out over a large area. And it actually might be the, probably the best telescope uh, in the world for, for low surface brightness sensitivity, particularly at these kind of frequencies. So it will be really good at being able to detect this, this emission that's, I mean, it's, it's energetic, but it's spread over these large areas. So again, it's really faint. So, I mean, the, the blue emission behind me is from an actual galaxy, but you can see that it's kind of looks wispy there, right? It's it's very spread out, and that's from the actual galaxy. So on a cluster scale, it's even even more so. But I think we're quite hopeful that um, we'll make a lot new, a lot of new detections in that area with ASCAP. Fantastic. Thank you. And I hope we can get to all of your questions, but we may not be able to in the time we have. So I just want to pass this question on to Karen, which is from Adam, who says, great presentation. Thanks to the panel. My son would like to ask what holds galaxies together and what is at the center of each galaxy? Good question. So basically it's gravity that holds a lot <laughs> of things together. It pulls everything in and there's so much gravity in the center of galaxies that a lot of times, probably all times, there's a large black hole which has all the gravity right there in the center. And so, yeah, it's like when you drop a ball, you know, it falls to the ground, that gravity force, that's pulling everything together. And that's what's holding galaxies together. <laughs> Fantastic. Thank you. Uh, I'll go to this question from Shane that says, what would you advise a high school student wanting to become a radio astronomer and work at ASCAP in the future? So, Vanessa, I'll go to you. What would you recommend? Yeah, like definitely you want to have um, some, some background in physics and math. So at the high school level, that would be a good starting point. Uh, but actually, most of the people in this call, you'll find, didn't just necessarily do pure science or math or physics alone. There's a lot of other things mixed into that. So don't think that you just have to do science to be a scientist. The other thing is, 
there are, as you've probably seen tonight, there's a lot of different ways in which you can be involved in astronomy without being a pure research astronomer. There's lots of different tasks. There's lots of ways to contribute to, you know, making something like ASCAP work. So just keep that in mind and look for opportunities. There's all kinds of things. Yeah, and on that, actually, um, interesting, Vanessa and I did the same degree at university. So we both did the very interesting, I think anyway, Bachelor of Liberal Studies, where you have to major in a science and an arts at the same time. So I did physics and art history, and uh, Vanessa did physics and Japanese, and of course, and she went on to do her PhD, and I went on to study science communication. So I get to work with the telescopes too without having a PhD. So it's great. <laughs> There are, yeah, there are lots of different careers that are, uh, that, require, that are required for these telescopes to operate and for us to be able to peer into the universe and let people know about it. Uh, so Tara, would you like to answer that question quickly as well? I agree with everything um, Vanessa said, and I, I would just add that, yes, if you, want to, if you want to become a scientist or an engineer, then the best things you could study at school are do some maths, do some coding, do some physics, um, and you know, see where your interest takes you. But all of the other skills that you're talking about um, are really important as well. But those key ones, maths, physics, coding, <laughs> out there. Yeah. And then of course, these systems need, elect uh, they need electricians, they need plumbers, they need, you know, all those sort of skills too are very much, very much needed. Uh, so the last question, I'm going to go to Lana. I know we're running out of time. Thank you for all your questions and thank you for, for joining us today. Uh, so Lana's question is, what is the most spectacular thing you have seen with the ASCAP telescope? So Karen, I'll start with you first. Ah, oh, there's so many oh, things. <laughs> I guess it's just being able to see so much in like one field, right? Like I said, when I started, ASCAP has this huge field of view and you're seeing so much just by one pointing when you like, and, and that is incredible because in that there's so much science that you can't even list the science in there. So it's just, yeah, every image from ASCAP is amazing. Uh, Tara? Probably the thing that I enjoyed the most uh, so far with ASCAP was when another one of my PhD students, Yuan Ming Wang, found some scintillating sources. So these were distant quasars, distant galaxies that were twinkling in radio light. And when we looked at them, they were in one of these massive ASCAP images aligned in a really, really straight and narrow line. And what we actually found was a clump of plasma really close to Earth that this light, this radio light was passing through, causing it to twinkle. And so she found a way that we could look for matter that you can't see in any other way, basically invisible matter in our galaxy using these distant radio galaxies would not be possible with any other telescope because you need the massive field of view that Karen just mentioned. Yeah, thank you. So, Vanessa? Yeah, I don't know. I think it's it's like, for me, the, the really exciting thing is seeing ASCAP go from, you know, where it was in the past and the early, the very early science results to, to kind of where it is now, like the just the things that are coming out, the things that are still going to come out, the path to full surveys, looking to the future and being able to say, yes, we're actually going to to start that and get even better results. So I don't know. I guess it's that balance of looking back in the last decade and also where we're going to be in the next five years. That's pretty exciting. And uh, last but not least, Tessa? That's a really hard question. 
probably like to steal Karen's answer because I agree that okay. just looking at one ASCAP tile or pointing, I mean, I could spend hours just, just you know, zooming around and, and scrolling and finding things. But kind of related to that, I think I would say one of my favorite things to see is is the RAC survey. So this was, I think, we mm. touched on earlier. So it's the Rapid ASCAP Continuum Survey. And they were able to finish doing the whole sky multiple times now. So at multiple different frequencies. And uh, I've seen some talks. I don't think it's all quite released yet. But just laying it out there at all three different frequencies. And you could just, it's amazing to see how, or think about how much science exists in those plots of all the images laid together across the whole sky. Yeah, I think we what what we can all say from from this is that there's so much more that we're going to discover in the next few years, and it's a really exciting time. And to be in Australia, to have this telescope, to have the ASCAP radio telescope, you know, just here, and to have you all telling us these stories. Thank you so much and sharing all your research with us. Thank you for joining us in this National Science Week. Uh, thank you to Inspiring Australia for running National Science Week, making sure it happens every year. And thank you to CSIRO for letting us put this on and, of course, use their, uh, their facilities. So, yes, can I please thank Karen, Tessa, Tara and Vanessa for joining me today. Thank you all online for, for tuning in, asking your fantastic questions. Thank you, everybody, and have a wonderful evening. And remember, Astrophys is free and unsponsored, and we're very happy to recommend that you can always get the latest and best space news from Rami Mandal at spaceaustralia.com. And for observers and astrophotographers, always check out Dr. Ian Musgrave's Astroblogger website. We'll see you in two weeks when we bring you Ian's December Sky Guide. Radio Wave.